from the ground up is supported by HowlRound, a free and open platform for theater makers worldwide. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, and HowlRound.com. Dear artists, welcome back. So glad to have you here to listen to one of my favorite interviews with Koya Pass of Free Street Theater in Chicago, Illinois. I remember going into this interview with a sniffle. Uh, it was April, but it was snowing again, and I had to plug the meter without gloves on, and I had this internal debate about whether or not I should put in one and a half hours or two hours into the meter, which is always the way it goes, am I right? And uh, come on, it's a quarter for like seven minutes, and you know, Chicago rates, and like, anyway, I just a long way of saying that I apologize for the sniffles that you might be hearing throughout. It is worth noting that we met on the eve of the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, April 3rd, 2018, uh, an event that Free Street was born out of as an initiative to address the segregation in the city of Chicago and the riots from the 1968 Democratic Convention. I'd say more, but I think that Koya says it best throughout this podcast. Something that really stuck out to me from this interview is that Koya thinks of herself as an organizer. She said it over and over again. And the goal being to change a heart or mind. She's committed to notions of self-representation and how a story shapes how people understand themselves and the place that they live what stories are those, and how do we complicate those stories? She says that she stages debate. Uh, She doesn't make plays that have a narrative. The arc of the play is the debate, an offering, an explosion, and that's something that I really love. She also makes a few references uh, throughout this piece. Uh, She talks about Bread and Puppet Theater, which if you don't know about Bread and Puppet, I would go down that rabbit hole for sure at some point. Highly political and led by Peter Schumann since 1963. We also talk about Willa Taylor at the Goodman Theater. She's the Director of Education and Community Engagement there. She's just one of those fantastic human beings who I'm just really happy has come into my life. Finally, uh, Koya refers to a bunch of neighborhoods and housing projects in Chicago, uh, including the Cabrini Green, the Back of the Yards, Pills, These are neighborhoods that are made up of principally marginalized populations. Throughout this piece, at the very end of the lightning round, uh, it gets interrupted by a book pitch, which is awesome. Uh, Koyapas and Chloe Johnston have written a book that we all should be reading. It's called Ensemble Made Chicago, A Guide to Devise Theater. It profiles exercises and stories from 15 companies around Chicago about their process. It is a fantastic and quick read and a must for a divisor and a co-creator in your life. Uh, you do not need to be from Chicago to enjoy this book. Uh, but it was so delightful to see some familiar names in this. I love knowing how things come to be and how individuals and groups make their work, which I guess is obvious since you're listening to a podcast about that right now. But I just have to say how I love that this book really incorporates improv into the ensemble-based work idea uh, with the inclusion of Second City and Viola Spolin, uh, because so often I feel like improv is somehow left off the theatrical spectrum when in fact we owe so much to it for um, the work that we do. All right. I think I've said definitely enough. Uh, Please enjoy uh, this interview with Koya Pass of Free Street Theater in Chicago, Illinois. April 3rd, 
This is Koya Pass. I know I'm being recorded. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. You hit all my check all those boxes really Great, quick. Sorry, yeah. Also, I have I I have that print that all I want to be is someone that makes new things and, and oh, things really? about yeah. them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love nice. it. I have a little. I printed it from the internet. No, no, no. I have the, like the little bitty postcard size yeah. printed oh, off that's too. So I great. love that. I yeah. love that. That's my favorite. Yeah. Isn't it true? Right? Like the best yeah. haiku. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like this and that, and that sums it up, right? That we're like, I want to make it. I want to think about it. Can you first start off? Just tell me what you're, what you've been doing at Free Street. Sure. Um, so Free Street is um, we've been around since 1969. Mm-hmm. We're about to turn 49 years old, and the next year we're about to turn 50. So Ooh. I keep. I'm so focused on 50. Um, that I keep forgetting we go through 49 first. Um, <laughs> um, an anniversary like that takes a lot of planning. And mm-hmm. it, um, it's uh, a big deal, I think, in the landscape of any not-for-profit or arts institution to have made it 50 decades. I mean, sorry, five decades. Yeah. That was terrible math. Um, <laughs> we are... Um, our founding mission back in 1969 was to make work that um, challenged Chicago's racial and economic segregation. We were founded in the wake of the 1968 riots, um, both after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, so this is the anniversary of that, 50th, and um, the uh, Democratic Convention um, Mm -hmm. protests. Um, so the city thought um, the Chicago, the city planners, like the people, <laughs> the man, thought that Chicago could use some healing. And they decided that the best way to do that was through a theater company. <laughs> and I laugh about it because to me it seems very naive. But that was the kind of founding moment of Free Street where they hired Patrick Henry, who was our founder, and um, asked him to put something together. And what he did is put together a uh, racially integrated from the beginning, and that was a big deal in the late 60s in Chicago. Um, some would say it would still be a big deal today, given the landscape of Chicago theater um, sort of is overwhelmingly white. Um, so he put together a multiracial, multigenerational theater that did free shows in public spaces um, that were original. Um, it wasn't about performing Shakespeare, for example, in the park. Um, it was about making work together that kind of evoked a communal spirit. It was. I always joke that whatever your stereotype about theater in the late 60s, early 70s, Free Street was that. You know, like free street theater. It was like tambourines and long hair mm. and afros and flowing clothes and like singing songs about like, let's be a flock together. <laughs> right. We're not sheep, you know, we're birds. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I'm actually citing an actual song from the early 70s. So just like kind of like, you know, these communal experiences. Um, In the time that has elapsed since 1969, um, Free Street has often changed the way that we make work um, and who we're making work with, but never straying uh, away from the original impulse, which is to think about how performance can be used to cross uh, racial and economic boundaries, just all of the time. Um, I think that there's nothing we've done in our multi-decade history that isn't a, a kind of experiment in thinking about how performance can um, be used in that way. 
um, I think the company became more radical as it went on. I, I don't think its founding impulse was that radical, mm. given that it was paid for by the city. I think we always say, like, uh. you know, you're interested in economics. Like, Free Street was started with a $300,000 grant from the city of Chicago or from the Arts, Arts Council. Um, of Illinois, one of those two. In 1969, $300,000 is a lot, a lot of money. Um, so it, it yeah. wasn't sort of started out of this like grassroots impulse. Um, but when that money ran out and it stopped being kind of inherently a city project, um, the work became much more radical and much more about thinking about structures and systems that um, caused the segregation in the first place. You can't really, I would say, like use performance to... You can use performance to create a space where people spend time together despite segregation, but it doesn't change segregation once the performance is over. Um, I think Free Street started looking for ways to think about how do we draw attention to the fact that segregation exists and why it exists. And um, that's what I mean when I say the work got more radical. In the 80s, the whole ensemble moved into Cabrini Green, which was a housing project. Spent a year making a musical with residents. Spent a long time as a youth theater project. I wasn't at Free Street for any of this. So, sure, so sure. I know you asked no, what no, am no. I doing at Free Street. No, no, I, no. But what I am doing is trying to understand what Free Street has done for 50 years. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, it became a youth theater in the kind of early 90s, which I also want to say at the time was pretty radical. Now you can't like throw a rock and not hit a youth engagement project at a theater company. But that was not so much the case in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, the people who were at Free Street then really pioneered working with young people in theater and thinking about how the theater might be used mm. to help young people think about their expressivity and the conditions that shape their lives. And, but it also became a youth theater for almost two decades, which in the grand scheme of things, it's not uh, even half the time that Free Street has existed. But it is the most recent memory of a lot of people. And so my work, when the board hired me six years ago, it was to do what we call a return to mission, where we are um, shifting away from being solely a youth theater company, um, though that still constitutes about 40% of our programming is made by people 21 and under, mm -hmm. um, into back to kind of multi-generational um, project because um, to me, you know, when they when they were interviewing me about becoming artistic director, I didn't think like actually what the city needed was another youth theater company. Um, um, there's some really excellent ones um, in Chicago. Now I also say I think Free Streets, the w work that young people make at Free Street is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, I stand behind it fully. But I was really personally interested in that early work of the 70s, um, late 60s and 70s of like, actually, we're such a hyper-segregated city still. Um, mm -hmm. And theater is, uh, I often describe theater as a white supremacy um, because it theater in Chicago, nationwide, but uh, I'll speak of Chicago, so hyper-dominated by um, white professionals and even sort of who we deem professional or not professional is so shaped by 
um, idea, kind of credentialized ideas about credentialism that are also ideas about sort of whiteness, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so what I've been doing in my time at Free Street is uh, preserving the youth work that we were doing. So we haven't done, we're not doing any less work mm -hmm. with youth than when I came, but we've just added a whole bunch of other programming. All of it back to this sort of experiment. I think of our work as a laboratory um, of thinking about, okay, what is the problem? Um, what are the structures that are creating this problem? And what kind of performance project might we design to address this problem? And what are our goals for it? What do we want to happen? Um, I'm not super optimistic about, I don't think performance in and of itself changes anything except maybe a mind or a feeling, but mm. that, um, I'm an organizer, that's a very low goal <laughs> for me, like sure. someone's heart will be changed, I'm like, and then mm. what will they do? Mm. Um, I, so, but what I do think about is our work at Free Street can be a part of um, a larger strategy mm. around different issues and um, community um, challenges facing communities. Um, mm -hmm. I'm really, we're really committed to notions of self-representation mm. and um, how we, how story shapes how people understand themselves and understand the place where they live. And so what stories are we telling about ourselves and the places where we live? And how might we complicate those stories? And that's why I've always been drawn to, so I've been talking a lot about kind of uh, philosophy, but in terms of our aesthetic, um, I started my work as a director and ensemble theater maker at Teatro Luna, which was my first theater company. I co-founded it in 2000. Um, and that was an all Latina theater company at the time. And um, I became very, you know, I had never made a piece of ensemble theater. Mm. It, I went to college in the 90s, and it wasn't like very, there wasn't something you took a class in in the 90s. Sure. You know, like yeah. maybe, like a, you know, Bread and Puppet came to do a workshop at my college. That was as close as I ever came to this notion of like co-creating or devising performance. Um, so... The uh, at Teatro Luna we had originally thought I think like oh we're gonna tell we're gonna produce plays by Latina women and we're gonna like cast canonical plays with Latina characters and put them in Latino settings mm. but to me that didn't feel right like that didn't um, it it still was telling a kind of mono narrative mm. and to me like the whole thing about being a latina is that latin latinidad is such an umbrella term for so many different kinds of people and to say that somebody is a latina actually tells you very little about who that person is but it tells you a lot about how that person might be perceived by people who are not them mm. does that make sense yeah, yeah and so um that was what we had in common is that we were all subject to even though we were all from really different places we were all subject to the same set of stereotypes yeah. or a handful of certain tropes reappeared and how people tried to cast us or work with us. So to me, like s telling stories together and adapting our personal narrative became um, what I thought 
was most interesting. Mm. Um, and that's what we started doing, um, is telling our own stories and co-adapting them together and working in this ensemble ethos um, that let us um, challenge each other. We, um, I often, in my work, stage debate because I find that that lets you get a lot of ideas out mm. in a way that has conflict, just can be funny, is interesting to the audience. You know, like all the things we want in a play. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't make plays that are um, that have a narrative arc. I have I make plays that have a um, uh, a debate. The the mm. arc is like the argument, um, <laughs> like assumption, counter argument, <laughs> explosion, offering, you know, like I, I think about the shape of um, my work um, in that way. So at Teatro Luna, I really became interested in like, how do we make work together? And what does it mean to be an ensemble? And um, how do you invite the audience into that? Um, we also did a lot of solo performance mm. at, Free St- at uh, Teatro Luna. And I think a lot of that is like, um, one, there just weren't there just were not in the early two thousands a lot of plays that had characters for complicated Latino women. Mm. First, so pragmatically making our own work and making our own stories let us make work that had room for everybody, and that's that kind of still why I stand behind co-created work above all else is that actually we don't even have to engage in the politics of casting we just have to decide like who do we want in the room right now and then how do we make awesome parts for everybody you know Mm -hmm. like uh, it's not about who's in or who's out it's like we're all in and now let's make it you know make something where we all belong and that to me is like I don't understand how we can think about theater and social justice in a way that from the jump has already excluded like who makes the decision to choose a player script you know like mm-hmm. that is a top-down decision yeah um versus like uh how do we because even when i so as as an artistic director at free street we do six to eight new shows a year. We are incredibly prolific. <laughs> like we, I joke we're a factory for like ensemble and co-created work. We talk about our work as co-created because sometimes mm-hmm. it's as few as two people making the play together. Sure. Um, but never pre-scripted is the, my kind of rule. Um, and, you know, I'll start with an idea or like, here's the concept, but it never turns out the way I imagined it would. And that's not a bad thing. Like it's that it's been complicated or a new perspective comes in or we go somewhere and we're like, what? Oh, we can't possibly do this. Like we need to change it all. And, um, my staff at free street is sort of like endlessly concerned about (laughs) the ways in which I'm so loosey goosey with like, we're going to change it all right now. And they're like, no, yeah, we can't. (laughs) You know, like we have uh, like some right. grant deliverables due. And, sure. Um, but I, I work really hard in my capacity, both as a maker, but also as a facilitator of other people's ensemble work to think about, like, how do we, as to the extent that is possible, reimagine our structures as needed every time we're working on a new show yeah so that it's never have to be made in the same way that we made the previous thing if that doesn't serve this particular project i think we have to be creative not just as artists but as administrators to the work and that's a fantastically 
big challenge to leave yourself open to the possibility of like, let's start from square one again. How did you start to practice that, leaving yourself open to changing on the spot? Yeah, I mean, it is hard. I mean, I do think that part of why you don't see co-created work happening at a lot of big budget theaters, you know, like thinking about your questions about economics, is that a playwright will go through like many, many, many drafts before anyone decides it's like time to bring in a larger team. You know, so like that work is being done the small scale. I don't Mm -hmm. mean intellectually or creatively, but it's really like the playwright, maybe the director, maybe a dramaturg. Mm Before With ensemble work, you have everybody there, ideally, even your designers, from the beginning. And so then it's a much bigger ship to steer. Um, But I think maybe ship is not the right analogy. Like, we have to be like an amoeba. Right. You know, like, what, Katamari? Did you ever play that video game where you're, like, rolling? It's a Japanese video game. You're, like, picking up more stuff. Collecting, 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 collecting. Yes. This is it. Oh, my gosh. Um, (laughs) That's an anxiety-inducing game, right? I have to get it all. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Maybe I don't think that's possible. No, no, no. It's also very satisfying because, like, it's, like, collecting and building and more and more. And yeah. yeah, yeah, and you can you can take it on. Yeah, um, at Teatro Luna, we didn't have seasons. Um, mm. We and we actually don't have on Free Street. We're under a little more pressure to have seasons, just from a marketing perspective. Sure. Um, at Teatro Luna, because we were not a we were a theater company, but really we were in a, a theater ensemble. Mm-hmm. So nobody was shocked if we were like, uh, "We'll see you in a year and a half." With a new play, you know, yeah. and that was our new play. We yeah. weren't under pressure to make, like, three plays a year. Mm. We made a play every year, every other year, and then we toured the play that already existed, and mm. we were constantly showing work in progress. Like, that was what we developed, was that we would show work in progress kind of on a regular mm timeline not one that was publicized but we'd kind of be like ah guys or mujeres so we never called each other guys um <laughs> we'll it's been a minute since we showed any of this to an audience so because the danger with co-created work is that it, it can you can beca- become a world in and of it yourself mm-hmm. and you lose the perspective of what the audience is going to see or think or feel and like, right it's so easy to start referencing inside jokes and inside things and yeah. it's like has anyone ever made this piece legible to the audience yeah um so we would show our work (laughs) and then we'd get feedback and then we'd come back and remake it um we often used festivals as an opportunity to show a work in progress before we ever mounted a production yeah um and because of the way we worked, it was pretty easy for us to go to funders and say like, hey, I know you gave us some money to work on this project, but it's not ready yet. But here's how we've, what we've been doing and uh, here's how we showed it to an audience. And so we were still able to make a case for like the funding somebody had given us, for Mm. example, which is I think a lot of times people are worried about their grant deliverable. So they're trying to put something in front of an audience. We were always very comfortable saying this is a probadita, like a little taste, mm. and actually inviting the audience in for commentary as a part of our process. So it was long. We also toured. Um, so that's actually how we made most of our money. Over half of our budget was earned income from touring. And our budget was never more than $100,000 a year. It was pretty um, small. 
Um, but we didn't have a lot of overhead either. You know, like we do a show and we feel like it. Um, our shows sold really well. They usually paid for themselves. Mm. We would get a grant to develop it and we would tour. So that way everybody in the ensemble was also making money. Um, we had kind of double cast every part in every mm. show. Or it was flexible. Like, we all knew each other's parts. So, like, if, if I couldn't go to this sh- college on this date, somebody else knew my part. So we could have five people go. We could have Great. seven people go. Um, it was that intimate a thing. So that's kind of how we paid for that. Yeah. Free Street is much more, like, first of all, um, at the Adro Luna we charged. Free Street is um, completely 100% on a free or pay-what-you-can model. Yeah. Um, every year for 49 years, I mean, assuming all goes well this year, uh-huh. we've done a show outdoors um, for free mm-hmm. um, for whoever happens upon it. Um, we don't ever charge for those shows. And then the shows in our spaces are um, pay what you can. So if someone wants to reserve a ticket in advance, they um, can buy one online, and we have, like, it starts at five and goes to, like, a thousand! Yeah, yeah. No one ever pays a thousand dollars for a ticket. Um, But you never know. No, Um, that's exactly it. You never know. Someone will be like, I have been here before, and I know what this value of this is, and and we'll drop it. (laughs) Who knows? knows? Hopefully sometime soon. Yeah, I think actually we don't put a thousand on there, but I think it goes up to a hundred dollars. It goes pretty, yeah, 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 yeah. I was Um, looking at Juanita Doe, and and I was looking at, and I was like, oh my gosh, this structure is awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but actually, if someone came to the door, they could give us a dollar or a song or, you know, like whatever. It's pay what you can. Yeah. It doesn't have to be money. Yeah. We've had, um, especially children, you know, like they'll come. Um, so we have Meet Juanito Do is in a storefront that we um, built out because um, we needed a space on the south side. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't find one that wasn't kind of attached to the government. And we didn't want that. So... Um, we made the space, but our main space that we perform in during the year is in Pulaski Park. It's a okay. Chicago Park District building um, on the third floor. We have the whole third floor. So it's a 70 seat theater, and then we have an office, a rehearsal room, a lobby. Um, we often get kids wandering up from other park programming and they're like well can i come in and see and we're like well what are you going to pay us and they're like well how many money we're like you don't have to pay with money what do you know like do you know a joke tell me a joke do you know like we try to really like model yeah. like there it is an exchange you know yeah. i think that that is why it's not just like free or donation that we do sort of say like we do ask audiences to attach some value yes to um the work that artists are putting in to mm-hmm. making this. But actually it's not for us to decide what that what people can afford in their attaching a value. Does it make sense? Yeah. Like for some people ten dollars is nothing and for some people ten dollars is really like the whole margin of their income. You know, like it right. is the difference between um being able to afford to get on the bus or not. And so I don't know, like, what one person's dollar is to another. Or, like, that just because someone doesn't have money doesn't mean that they don't want to be able to offer something else. And that I think if we're trying to avoid kind of totally capitalist thinking, 
we do have to think about what else kind of demonstrates a value. Mm-hmm. Or um, at the same time, uh, we live in capitalism. So I, as an arts administrator, I can't be too like woo woo about like let's get rid of money because right. we still have a, we. I joke at Free Street that we have the worst business model in the world because we offer everything free or pay what you can. The average ticket price on our shows is $7.50. That fluctuates, but pretty much that's what it comes down to. So that's not where we're making any money. Um, And we pay all of our artists, designers, um, community collaborators for the most part. Um, I say for the most part because sometimes we'll do like a free workshop that Mm -hmm. is um, we don't pay people to come to the free workshops but neither do we charge for them sure Um, and when we're doing anything that's more than one session we do pay anybody that is kind of making a commitment to being um, with us more than once so that's rough model <laughs> like where does the money come from and yeah. some of it we do have um uh, quite a bit of foundation support mm-hmm. um that's the majority of our money and i think that's a really precarious place for any ensemble or any company because foundations change their funding priority sure. program officers change boards change they like us now they might not like us next week right so um that makes me nervous yeah um we do um hope that people will um make donations you know like we we do kind of operate on this very pollyanna thing of like but if you can afford it then please pay for it so that other people who can't afford it can still appreciate like be a part of it um the problem is like we don't know a lot of rich people because Mm. We don't cultivate that as our community. I mean, and by rich people, I don't even mean like super wealthy. I mean people with any disposable income because Mm. so much of our focus as a company is on filling gaps and building networks and creating representations of people who are not usually included in the theater. Um, So people that are... um, maybe don't have a lot of money you know it's, yeah. it tends to be where we're focusing our energy and then um, um it's funny because like the number of people who give us donations is quite high mm-hmm. but the donation amount is like five dollars ten dollars so like adding it all up you can have a thousand people give us five dollars mm-hmm. and that's still only five thousand dollars which didn't even pay for one show you know what i mean that's yeah. sort of the problem on the one hand i'm like um, and I think this is actually some of what funders are looking for. It's like, actually, we do have a lot of community buy-in. Um, yeah. It's just that our community doesn't have a lot of money to buy in. And yeah. so then how do we get people who have a little more money to support it is always the question. Yeah. You know, I feel like that's my constant hustle is balancing um, the politics. You know, and like I'm always with the board. I want to say my board is super supportive of my vision for how our money circulates Mm -hmm. um like every now and then it comes up like should we just be like having more volunteers i'm like we will have no volunteers Uh (laughs) like this is work right like we have to value like literally value people's labor and it's not that people are like getting like even probably paying their rent Mm -hmm. with what we can afford to pay at free street though i will say we are 
competitive, if not much better paid than your average storefront theater. But we're not paying equity rates, you know. Sure. Um, uh, but it shouldn't cost somebody money to work at Free Street. So, like, for example, we offered co-programming on child care, basically, mm. during um, rehearsals if people need it. Like, because, you know, babysitters are expensive. Oh, yeah. If you have to pay somebody, you know, $10, $15, $20 an hour so that you can come make $2 an hour at rehearsal, that's not going to work out for you. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because um, I always think, like, okay, so, like, actors get a stipend if they're lucky of, like, not at Free Street, but at other places, mm-hmm. 150 bucks, you know, and, like, six weeks of rehearsal. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't even pay, like, the cost of getting on the bus right. and coming, you know? <clears throat> so, like, for me, like, at the very least, like, it should not cost anybody any money to be an artist. Right. And we also offer children's free co-programming at shows so that people don't have to get a babysitter to come see the plays. Also, children are very welcome in the plays, but yeah. sometimes it's not relaxing as a parent if, like, your kid is, like, fussing. Sure. As kids do. Right. So we're aware. So any of I got a little bit off track. Oh, so I try not to have volunteers. Every now and then, like, we need someone to help us, like, paint the floor. Or, you know, mm-hmm. like, it's nice if someone wants to be like, yes, Koya, I'm your friend. I'll come paint the floor. You know, but, yeah. like, as a friend favor and not as a, like operating model for the company sure which i think too often we operate on people's unpaid labor but then how do we sustain ourselves as a field if we're constantly saying like the only way to make a living in theater is if you're working in an equity house well that's a limited pool right most people won't then i think we need to be smarter about how we are imagining our own economies and like what we're paying money for and what we're valuing um so sometimes so my board is pretty supportive you know we've had a couple of debates about the price point for fundraisers Mm -hmm. and that you know like i want the fundraiser to be free (laughs) like the whole point of a fundraiser is to raise money like it can't be free you know and i'm like okay but can we you know and actually we are working with a fundraising consultant right now because i'm trying to get our um, a little more of our operating costs coming from um, more diversified sources than mm. foundations. So, like, more individual giving. Broadly, if one person stops giving us $100 a year, that's not a crisis. If, like, one foundation stops giving us $15,000 a year, that is a crisis, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and our fundraising consultant is really great about being like, oh, yeah, what if we identified a sponsor who would pay for the event mm. and then it could be free and i'm like yes that's what i'm talking about there we go um so <laughs> this is what i want you know so yeah. uh, that's where it's like helpful to bring in people who are like professional thinkers about money mm-hmm. um i'm not a i do study arts economy as a researcher but that's not about how to raise money that's about like where money goes and mm. how foundation who are foundations supporting or tax dollars supporting like where's that money circulating yeah. not so much like how do we raise money yeah. um so and then the other thing i think we did at at the Teatro luna really well and i've been thinking about how to do this better at free street is how do we just market ourselves as experts mm. in 
you know, like free Teatro Luna did a lot of like workshops and college tours and trainings and things like that. Um, and so Free Street, I think, has like a lot to offer other companies in terms of thinking. You know, everyone's talking about equity, diversity, and inclusion, mm -hmm. but they're thinking about it really cosmetically. And they're doomed to fail. I mean, I really, like, I listen to, like, it's you say we met at intersections, but I was just at a different intersections. That's why I was like, why didn't you introduce yourself? Oh, it was just oh, last oh. weekend that it was, like, after we'd been emailing. Right. Um, I was at a different um, intersections conference. That's such a popular name for mm. theaters, um, theater conferences. And it was about um, community engagement and outreach and, mm -hmm. like, um, hearing people talk about their projects i'm like guys it's not gonna work like what i'm not trying to be a hater but what you're talking about is not gonna work because you're not starting at the source of the problem and working out you're trying to fix the result of the problem mm. which doesn't change how that funnel how that problem is bubbling up does that make sense i'm yeah. using like 40 analogies no 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 this is, here, this is, no i love a good mixed metaphor that's yeah, my, that's my like, favorite it's bubbling <laughs> and it's pipelining yeah. and like um, yeah. So I was like, oh, oh, please. Go I was ahead. just gonna say that it feels like people are not looking at the source, and they're just like you're saying it's cosmetic. People are looking at here's the results of EDI, right. uh, and we need to be on our end, um, worried about sort of retroactively addressing it in in a very odd way. Yeah. And even that isn't fully encompassing of the whole idea, but it's not looking at who can buy tickets or who right. can who can come through our, our doors. What might be the target that we should be looking for rather than just the cosmetic well, fix? This is what I think about some of that. It is true. Like our efforts for like equity and diversity and inclusion are so focused on the representational. Like mm. who's on stage who is maybe the playwright, maybe who's the director, though I see that the least. Mm -hmm. um, not even who's on the board, who's the artistic director, who's the marketing people. So, but all of it is like, so often people do like a Latino play, for example, or a quote, I can't see me making air quote signs, but please see <laughs> the black yes. play or the Latino play in air quote. As if, like, somehow that's going to bring in this, like, new diverse audience and the problem is solved. And as soon as you're not doing a black or Latino play, you're not going to have black or Latino audiences in. Like, because it's not about, like, it assumes that, like, a, a black or Latino audience doesn't know that there are white stories being told on stage and if they only came to the theater once they would keep coming mm. and it's like actually the reason why you don't have a lot of like latino and like black audiences for example for a play that is not by an african-american playwright or featuring a latino cast or whatever it is is because like one theater is super expensive and if you're why would you pay eighty dollars to see the same thing that is available to you everywhere? Mm. Like what's exciting about a Latino play is like finally I can see something not available anywhere else. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so yeah. like it doesn't address like the fundamental problem of like 
people's desire to see themselves represented. And we talk so much about the theater as being like a bridge. Like we can, it's an empathetic art. We understand Mm. the human story. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I see, and I mean this with such, like, I don't mean to sound like a hater. As any person of a difference is constantly crossing an empathetic bridge to Mm. understand, like, mainstream narratives. Like, that's all there is, is, like, stories of, like, white cis het people all the time. So if you're not any of those things, you've already, your whole life, been crossing a bridge and trying to, like, read things in a way that's applicable to you. And it's, like, very insulting to imagine that, like, people should keep doing that work over and over again at a really high price tag um, with no, like, you know what I mean? Like in, in a way, because you threw them a token and that's like assuming an audience that maybe would have the disposable income to see a theater. Right. The reality is most people, for most people, the theater is inaccessible, not just financially, but geographically. Like you look at a city like Chicago, like we think about the good men and actually no shade to the good men. I, I think that, um, they are, their engagement department is run by a damn genius. Willa mm. Taylor is like one yeah, of the smartest Willa. people I've ever met in my life. Yeah. And she's a favorite person. Yeah. Yeah. She's amazing. <coughs> yeah. So it's like no shade. But like we imagine the Goodman as like somehow being in the center of the city and it's just mm-hmm. like absolutely not. Um, it is uh, all the way east, just off the lake. The city goes really far west. And it's in the loop, which isn't even in the middle of the city. So, like, if that's what we're imagining, like, our center to be, we have already sort of decided that the farthest west and the farthest south and the farthest north of the city are, like, so far on the outskirts they don't matter. Mm. Um, Or, like, we take... Like, the red line ends at 95th, but it actually keeps going for, you know dozens and dozens of blocks right. past that. What does it go to 138? Yeah. So it's like, how are people even getting to uh, see theater or yeah. going to see plays? Like when we wanted to do Meet Juanito Doe in a space that wasn't, that's our current show, in a space that wasn't a park district building, a school or a church, on the south side in a Mexican neighborhood, we actually had almost no options. And, like, the handful of options that we were exploring were not Latino-owned or Mm. Latinx-owned. They'd already been kind of bought by gentrifying arts people. Mm. And that wasn't the economy we wanted to support with our dollars. You Mm -hmm. know, like, oh, you opened a performance gallery in Pilsen? Great. But that's not where we're paying rent. Right. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Unless you are making it by, for, and with a community that is being pushed out does that make sense yes so we had to like make it ourselves because there's actually just not spaces like that to rent um and so you know it's so much of what we're trying to figure out and i think that other theaters should be more thoughtful about this is like when you get money to do a project for example where are you spending that money and is it circulating in the communities you're designed to reach? Mm. So, like, we hyper-valorize the arts dollar. 
right? Like, um, you know, for every dollar spent on the arts, you see up to $28 of corollary spending at bars, at restaurants, shopping, right? Like, that the money spent on theater drives the economy around it. But when you do a community engagement project where like the whole thing is like, oh, we're gonna go collect stories in the community and then we're gonna bring them back to our theater that's mm. not in the community and perform them, you vacated that arts dollar from the yeah. community and usually you've not paid the people in the community to share those stories. So like no piece of the arts dollar is actually circulating in the community. Yeah. You know, versus like what we're trying to do is really think about like how do we use our limited art style and we're not super rich like we have a projected budget this year of three hundred thousand dollars and that, that is tripled <laughs> from uh two years ago <laughs> so just to give you a sense of like mm -hmm. we're very small um now that's not nothing that's more than a lot of small companies mm -hmm. have you mm -hmm. know so I'm attentive to that, but it's still not like I joke. It's not even the photocopying budget, probably. Sure. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. It's um, <laughs> really large theater, you know, like the Goodman. I'm sure they don't spend three hundred thousand dollars a year on photocopies, <laughs> but maybe on uh, flyers. I'm sure. Sure. You know, so um, we try to think about like, okay, who are we hiring first of all? Mm -hmm. Like, who are artists and who are we paying money to? Um, to the extent that they can be from underrepresented communities, the better. Um, or underhired is really what it is. We talk about underrepresentation, but really it's like underhiring. Mm -hmm. You know, like we just haven't hired people to do work. Um, can we spend how, what percentage of every um, project budget can we actually spend in the communities that we're serving? Mm -hmm. So buying our paint there, buying our food there renting a space there, um, hiring local people to cater, you know, like there's so many ways that we can think about driving economy around even a project, you know, and then of course performing there so that we're inviting the audience to come to a space and hopefully spend money there. Yeah. You know, like, it, so we think about economics pretty comprehensively at Free Street. Yeah. But like if your engagement project isn't thinking about it in that way you're always just gonna be like somebody it's like why do you want me to come see your show you mm -hmm. know what i mean like mm -hmm. really what are you trying to do it's about me seeing you not what you're doing for me yeah. does it make sense totally makes sense reminds me of something that willa <clears throat> said to me at some point being that they try to make work in a community for the community that is left there mm -hmm. that we're gonna make this we're gonna leave it there you have it now. Right. And so that is the sort of engagement that really sort of excites me. And if we're not committed to working in that community, then what are we doing in that space? Why right. are we there? Um, I just want to take a quick second and take it back to your current budget of 300000 and just ask uh, how much, and you had said this is a very small amount, but I was wondering if you could put a percent on how much is contributed versus how much is earned income. And you oh, said that earned was very a very small percentage. None of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would say earned income is. Mm, I have no idea. Okay. Maybe fifteen percent. Okay. Um, almost all of our money is, comes from foundations. Quite frankly, mm -hmm. that's changing. Um, we have um, our 
uh, individual donations are up, mm -hmm. as is, um, well, it's hard. Like, the reality is, like, the number of people coming to, we have a lot of people come see our shows, mm -hmm. that they aren't paying a lot of money. Sure. You know. And what's the demographic, would you say? Like, who is the... Who is the person coming to see the show? What's that? You it know? depends on who, what, what the show is. Sure. Um, we we attract multiple demographics, but I think if you came to see any Free Street show, you would find it much more racially diverse than um, pretty much any other theater in Chicago. Yeah. Um, in Mi Juanito Do, for example, it's about Mexicans on the South Side. I don't think it's a surprise that like uh, the audience is pretty Mexican. You know, like yeah. a lot of the people were like, what? I want to see that are Mexicans. That said, um, always a strong percentage of non-Mexican, non-Latinx people at those shows too. You know, and um, a lot of times it's people who've had to travel maybe for the first time into a, a back of the yards, yeah. which doesn't isn't you know and we're really nervous about that because we're like we don't want to be a force for identification like mm -hmm. we don't want people being like hey it's cute here i can't afford pilsen so let me move a few blocks mm -hmm. south you know mm -hmm. like that's not what we're going for whereas like the youth show for example is opens next friday it's immersive prom themed um it takes place at a prom mm -hmm. and the audience is cast as prom people at the prom but it's about radical love. Like, how do we use love as a force for change and change-making? Yeah. Um, I'm sure they'll be citing some bell hooks. Um, so uh, that the youth ensemble is, like, more than half African-American. Uh, it's about a third... I don't know the Democrat. I don't know how to do math. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is, uh, I believe, like, maybe a quarter of the... Um, cast is white, um, and the rest of the cast is uh, Latinx and African American. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you see in the youth shows in particular a really strong showing a lot a really strong piece of the audience is like friends, family, and, co and community around the young people. Mm -hmm. So a lot of their peers at school, and um, that tends to segregate. You know, so like a. a a black actor in the youth show, most of the people coming to support them are black. Sure. Um, you know, like, that's just, like, the reality of how people live. Yeah. So, But then that makes for a really diverse audience. Yeah. Um, my daughter, she was a super savvy little human. Um, she's nine now. Great. Wow. She made this observation almost two years ago where I was, like, stressing about, like, money and, like, people coming in and, like, and she was like, Mommy... She's like, you say that you want to make sure that everybody that can afford to come can come, even if they only pay a dollar. But she was like, I think the people who pay a dollar could afford to pay a lot more. And I was mm -hmm. like, interesting. Because what she was reading, and I actually started doing some like demographic study on this, mm -hmm. is that um, a lot of the people who are not valuing the work are people that I would read... Now, again, I'm not on the inside of their checking account. Uh -huh. As people who were likely to follow seeing the play by going to get a $12 cocktail. Do you know what I mean? Just yep. based on reading the outfits, the clothes, the conversation in the lobby about getting drained. Like, oh, that's interesting. You paid $5 to see this play. 
uh, because you're saving your money to go out for drinks or buy a bag of weed or like there's like other things you're prioritizing that are not like rent and diapers. And, right. You know, they're all similarly entertainment. Whereas the higher ticket prices were across the board, like in the like unscientific. So like I just like for the run of a show mm -hmm. would just like kind of track the racial demographics of who was donating what range of money mm -hmm. for me. Because I was yeah. curious. I'm a hater yeah. and yeah. I was curious. I wanted some data. Yeah. Uh, middle-aged black women across the board gave us like all the 20s do you know what I mean sure. like here's what I'm paying $40 you know like yeah um, and it was almost always like white hipsters who were like here's $5 yeah or uh, I didn't bring a I didn't bring any money yeah I don't have cash we take credit cards um, but and again the policy is designed so that people Again, we're not deciding for people. Like, mm -hmm. I got into an argument with one of my collaborators on a different project that had a sliding scale attached to it, and it was by income. You know, so like, if you make fifty thousand dollars a year, you should pay ten. If you do, this, and I was like, whoa, I don't think someone's annual income is an accurate gauge of how much disposable income they have because you could make $50,000 a year and if it's just you and you're not caring for ailing parents and you don't have any children right. and you don't have any student loans right. that's a lot of money yeah. But if you are making $50,000 and you have two kids and you're still paying off student loans, that's no money at all. That's a lot of life to consider before you. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, I don't know what somebody's like insulin is costing them. Like, yeah. I don't yeah. know anything yeah. about somebody's life. All I can say is like, we made this. It was not free to make it. Everybody here is a laborer themselves. Yeah. And so how do we support each other? Oh, no. Like, <laughs> I haven't mastered it yet. Yeah. Um, totally. Working on it. Sorry, you were asking me questions. No, no, no. Right? That's solid. No, this is. Listen, these are the spinoffs that I want to yeah. be touching. This is great. You own your own space, correct? Or no? So this is an important piece of our economy. Is that we've been arts partners and residents with the Chicago Park District for twenty nine years. Right. Oh, that's we right. We pioneered yeah. the project, so we were the first to approach the Chicago Park District and say, "Hey." can we trade mm -hmm. and I say we I was like in high school it wasn't <laughs> me it was my forerunners at Free Street can we trade um, space for classes yeah um, and they said sure um, at the time Pulaski Park was in a really working class neighborhood um, the neighborhood has changed around the park it's n near Bucktown right, to right. give you a sense of like it's kind of funny that that's our home because the more the neighborhood changes, the less our work and the people making our work reflect the community around us. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that was the case 20 years ago. Sure. Um, so we exchange um, classes um, and free programming for our space. Uh -huh. And the Chicago Park District, I think, is a major subsidizer of the arts in general. Yeah. Like every park district space... Um, either has or would be open to having an arts partner. Mm. So somebody who is basically living there. Albany Park is also an arts partner. Um, the Seldoms are arts partners. You know, there's like uh, everywhere when you start to look at economy and theater and experimental dance, mm -hmm. a lot of people are subsidizing that by exchanging uh, 
classes for space and a park district. Because huh, yeah. it works well for the park, too. They have yeah. the space. What they don't have money for is programming. Yeah. Um, so we are really proud to... Um, c- we collaborate really closely with the park district. I, I think the park district is an unsung hero of... Chicago, you know, we talk so much about how Chicago is this thriving theater scene and like it's cheap to make theater here. And I'm like, but how many auditions have you been to in a park building? Sure, you know, like yeah, there yeah. are, the park is a really valuable resource for yeah. the artists. So we don't pay for our theater space. Yeah. But this is part of why we've tried to, part of what we try to do is like, so our, our most valuable asset is the 70-seat theater. In a way, it, it's like a, not the fanciest theater you ever saw. But a 70-seat theater is not nothing in a place yep. where most companies really need a space. So what we try to do is make that space available to as many people making work aligned with our mission as possible. Mm. So we have an, an, a residency program where we are housing um Right now, we have four different artist projects in residence, so people making work yeah. that is co-created yeah. um, for free in our space. Like They are able to use rehearsal room, uh, use our computers, photocopy, all of that stuff. Wow. And when the time comes, our deal, when the show is ready, and like for some, the show might be ready in October. For some, it may be like, you need another year, so just keep making, keep playing is that we want to take away all economic risk. So we pay for, um, they have space for free, including performance space when Mm -hmm. the time comes. And then we also pay for um, the children's co-programming as needed. Uh, A box office person, we handle all the front of house. We give them a board op. Mm. Um, And then depending on the project, we may also pay for a director or set some piece of the set budget and then we pay for the marketing wow and then it's a box office split so we always say like the pay what you can model is not negotiable so you're unlikely to like get rich from the box office but what we want is this not to cost you anything right to make yeah so that you can make new work without accruing financial risk if audiences don't come but actually we have quite a passionate audience at free street so yeah but they're just not paying a lot of money it's it's, this is what's what i'm hearing is like it's so much more important to have an exchange and to have a community and to have the the roots growing um you know the the most important thing and though money money shame on all of us non-capitalists but like the money is important right and 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 but the money in these circumstances are not the driving factor for making the work. It's it's if we could if we could have people come for free that would be great. But or if 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 we can make it so that it's a zero cost for everyone to come through the door, but still be able to pay the actors would be some sort of dream world that we could right. would be great. Um, you talked a little bit about paying artists, paying all of the artists that you um, have incorporated in any way. Do you have any administrators? that uh you pay or like who are the full-time fact or uh, who are the full-time staff uh at free street and how do 
are they are are they connected with the um, parks department as well, or are they? So we have two full time staff at okay. Bree Street. Um, Melissa Dupre is our general manager, and Katrina Dion is our. She has the most convoluted title: youth and operations coordinator. I don't know what her title is. Um, <laughs> she runs our youth programming, and then also is basically our grants manager. So. She kind of has a mashup of things. Yeah. Um, she was a double major theater and math, so that's perfect for her. Right. Um, she's a director by training and then a mathematician by love. So they run our day to day operations. Okay. Um, I'm there part time. We have about three other part time people that work for us, um, either as a teaching artist, like we have a teaching artist who does the 12 and under because um, we do quite a in exchange for our space we offer quite a few classes for small children so um, Bella is our small children person mm-hmm. um, and then we have a part time staff person running the storyfront space mm-hmm. um, kind of just making sure it's open when it needs yeah. to be open and clean and yeah. um, letting people in and out um, and then we're about to hire a curator for that space, yeah. um, which will honestly, th- it'll be an internal hire. We've been putting together money to pay somebody for the work that they're doing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He has been paid, or it's Ricky Gamboa, has been paid from one grant, but that grant has ended, mm. but our commitment to programming in that space has not. So now we've been like, okay, what what's the new role going to look like? And yeah, what do yeah. we need it to do in yeah. exchange for money? And um, so yeah, all of our almost all of our money of that budget yeah. goes to people. Mm-hmm. Our um, other costs are minimal. You see our sets; they're not fancy. Like <laughs> we do beautiful work with um, what we have. Like we yeah. try to operate on an asset-based model. Like instead of worrying about what we don't have, let's think about what we do have and what we can do with it. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And yeah. Actually, a lot of theater in the history of theater has operated in that way. Like we, the Shakespeare promise did not have a huge production budget. Yeah, they were trying to put as much money to paying themselves as possible. Yeah, <laughs> hence like, oh look, there's light. Yeah. If you hear it in the words, you're yeah. not going to see it in the production. You know, right. so we right. kind of operate on that model. Like, um, we try to create a cool look for things, but. Um, Sometimes our cool look for things is we're out outside in a park. Yeah. There you go. Um, we don't spend a lot of money on marketing, uh, maybe to our detriment. We're about to rebrand, so we'll see what the rebranding agency says. We are trying to model. It's like, hey, we don't have to make our theater company the way any other theater company has ever been made. Like mm-hmm. We can mm-hmm. reinvent structures yeah. that work for the work we want to make and the way we want to make it. Yeah. And sometimes that's a slow change. Yeah. Like in the case of Free Street, I inherited a lot and I changed a lot and we're still changing. Yeah. I don't know what our work will look like in 10 years because we're still playing. I hope it will always look different, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I do want Free Street to get some credit, though, for doing things like pioneering the arts partnership project. You know, like someone had to go to the park district yeah. and be like, how about this? Yeah, yeah, and then idea. now dozens and dozens of theater companies yeah. can afford their rent because somebody at Free Street did that 
literally 30 years ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, that we have night out in the parks. Um, well, Free Street was the proto night out in the parks, you know, in our collaborations with the park district saying, how can we be outside yeah. and make work? And, yeah. Um, now we have literally 5,000 events, you yeah, know. Yeah. I'm not saying Free Street did that alone, but in terms of shouldering the... Uh, uh, going back to this thing of, like, I think about our work as a laboratory, yeah. we have been, like, the early risk-takers in a lot of experimental work. And I mm -hmm. don't mean experimental in terms of content. I mean in terms of, like, w what would it look like if we produced on this model? Mm. And sometimes it's been not that great. Like, Free Street has been at the brink of financial ruin many times <laughs> in the last 50 years. Mm. Like, I, in getting ready for 50, I've, like, dug through the archive, not by myself, with the, my whole team sure. of awesome people. Um, and, <laughs> like, the sheer number of, like, well, we're going to be bankrupt now, and then we're not, mm. because we're willing to pivot so completely and not be attached to what we had planned to do. What is important is that we are able to respond to our mission, not to our season planning, not to any of that. Does that make sense? Yes, you know, absolutely. So like if we have to, I don't know, it hasn't happened in my time that we decide not to do a play. Yeah. It has happened in my time that we push back a play, but not for money reasons. Mm -hmm for I don't think this is ready reason yeah and yeah. sometimes we don't because the artist is like I do and I'm like well you're gonna find out yeah but, right all right cool. <laughs> like I don't because we don't make money from our shows yeah. we have no pressure to make money from our shows yeah. <laughs> you know and that's yeah. that's really liberatory yeah but totally. then you do have to be creative about where money is coming from yeah. or how you're living or I don't know yeah um, I want to totally respect your time here, so I'm going to jump right to the lightning round. Okay. Which I'm is, ready. off the top of your head, these, the answers to these questions. What's your favorite form of transportation? My car. What's your favorite salutation? Hola. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite exclamation? Something. Oh, I do say, like, oh my god, all of the time. <laughs> yeah. And I put a lot of exclamation marks in all of my writing. Facebook oh. keeps flagging my regular posts as spam because I use all caps and exclamation oh my gosh. so often that yeah. they're like, we've removed this for spam. I'm like, but it's not. But it's the truth. Back. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. um, what does ensemble mean to you? Uh, it means uh, a way of working where everybody is valued. You know, I just wrote a book about this, so. Oh yeah, can you do you want to say anything about that? Or is that not uh, Yeah. Yeah, I just wrote a book co-wrote the book, of course, in the spirit of the book with the awesome Chloe Johnston. Yeah. Um who is a Northwestern we both were in performance studies at Northwestern. And the book is called Ensemble Made Chicago, um a guide to uh, I think we had to change the name to put devising in it. I was uh -huh. sad. Because I actually don't use the word devising for my work. But it looks at 15 companies in Chicago who co-create work. Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, it's both like a mini history of each company and then exercises that they use to create their work. Um, wow. We have um, 48 exercises in the book. Um, so we hope it will be like a both a handbook and a history. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, like in the spirit. Of yeah. Like, how do you make stuff? Cool. Yeah. Can I borrow it? Let's yeah. make this other thing. That's so much of how we work. But one of the things I say then, and, and one of the things we say in the book, and I think it's true, is that ensemble starts from whoever is in the room and mm -hmm. goes from there. It's just a way of working that doesn't presume a hierarchy. Yeah. Um, and I, I always extend the thinking about the ensemble to the audience to the extent that our yes. work must rely on an audience it should yeah. you know like yeah. how do we make space in what we've created for people to add their own invention and their own creation as the show is happening yeah um it's an aesthetic that we've tried to cultivate yeah because an audience brings their own luggage to every show anyway so yeah and like yeah. are they talking back or yeah just, you know we yeah. Are like, have, you know like <laughs> they having a dance party yeah like there's a scene in meet Juanito do where there's a dance party and i swear like the audience is like they're like what like they're like, ready <laughs> to party and we're like yeah. okay, now sit down you yeah know? like it's funny yeah, I also direct plays for young audiences, and they have the same reactions. Oh yeah, know? like they're so they eager. Yeah, to like jump in. I'm like, we want all ages to be eager to jump in. Yeah, and make our work that way. Oh, totally true. What is the opposite of free street theater? Mm. Probably like. I don't know. I I feel like there's no way to answer that without okay. being like mean to another company. Sure. But I think any company that is like all white on the northeast side of the city charging more than $10 for a ticket Great. to a play by a playwright is the opposite of us. <laughs> Solid. What would you be doing if you weren't doing this, if you weren't at Free Street? I. Uh, well, I also teach full-time here at the theater school at DePaul University, so yeah. uh, grading papers. <laughs> I, don't I, I don't see... I'm an organizer. I was raised by leftists and organizers, and so um, I think I would be uh, doing some other kind of community organizing yeah. if I weren't doing it through theater. Great. And what's your favorite kind of ice cream? Uh, well, I don't eat any dairy. But it Ooh, used to be your... pistachio, mm. and I like soft serve better than non soft serve. Do you have a favorite substitute? For ice like, cream? Yeah. No. Frozen treat? Oh, no. No, none of it is right. Oh, I'm sorry. I just stopped eating Terry in oh. September, so it's like very recent. Sorry, I'll, I'll strike this from the records. We don't need to worry about it. You know what's funny is like we, um, uh, one of the things, the projects I'm working on right now is yeah. a journalism collaboration with ProPublica. Yes, where yes. We're touring around the state, doing workshops, engaging people around yes. the question of fake news. And, yeah. Um, and one of the questions that I always ask when I'm trying to like create controversy is, like, do you like ice cream? Because actually a lot of people have very strong opinions about ice cream. Yeah. So I don't think you should strike it. But just, no, it's a more <laughs> controversial question than you might suspect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, people have very, very strong opinions about, oh, pistachio, no way, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. I'm glad you touched on the ProPublica thing because it was on my list of things. But I, I do want to um, let you go to prep for your next thing. So thank Great. you so much for thank your time you. today. Thank I really you. appreciate it. And... Uh, big thanks to Jarrell Henderson who was able to put me in touch with Koya to begin with so thank you 
Jarrell. I hope you're doing great. Really loved this. I loved doing this interview, and it really got me thinking about structures in my life, structures of how do we address the problem, a, a problem that has been built and exists like a building that we have to walk around. Hmm, just something to chew on there. A reminder to check out Ensemble Made Chicago, A Guide to Devise Theater by Chloe Johnson and Koya Paz. It's, you, just, just, just check it out, okay? Uh, great. All right, this has been Jeffrey Moser, and you've been listening to From the Ground Up.